0: Warmest greetings, my dear fellow humans, and welcome back to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. Today's episode is lucky number 13, if you subscribe to that sort of thing. Although in time you will see just how unlucky some can truly be. Like I've said before, like most of the crimes I look into for this podcast, they are unknown by me beforehand, and like most stories I look into, the outcome is grim, or in this case, I should say, grimes. This crime happened in Illinois back in 1956, and it became one of the most investigated disappearances in the history of Chicago. Two sweet and young girls, Barbara and Patricia Grimes, who were devoted Elvis Presley fans and religiously watched his movies and listened to his music. They were two little fangirls, in other words. And one night, a special night, the Grimes sisters disappeared. Imagine it as a young girl in 1956... Hey, all you out there in Radio Land, it's me, the Groo, coming at you large and in charge. Hang on tight because we got some music for your ears. Here's Mr. Elvis Presley with Heartbreak Hotel. And that famous beat starts off and you lose your mind. Elvis even tried to convince the girls to return home. That's how widespread this case was back then. Content Warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include mentions of sexual abuse, descriptions of violence, and the state of two children's dead bodies. Listener discretion is therefore advised. It was a cold Friday night on December 28, 1956, a special night when two young girls went to watch a film on their own. They were inseparable sisters and responsible students. Barbara was 15 years old, while Patricia was about three years younger. They were two of seven siblings, born to Joseph and Loretta Grimes. Uh, Apparently, Joe and Loretta liked to get down. Anyway, wherever Barbara went, Patricia followed, and so they went to a movie theater in Brighton Park, only to disappear without leaving any trace behind. They were going to see one of Elvis Presley's films, Love Me Tender, As I've mentioned before, they were two devoted fans. It was the 11th, and unfortunately last, time that the girls would see this particular film. They had left their home by 7.30 p.m., having promised their mother they would return by midnight, but they never returned home. Even though the Brighton Theater was about one and a half miles from the sisters' home in McKinley Park, they never made it. Barbara and Patricia had about $2.50 in their pockets and $0.50 saved just in case they wanted to see the second screening of Presley's film. They were familiar enough with how to get to the theater that their parents didn't feel like they needed to accompany them anymore, so they went alone. Like I said, it was a special night. As the siblings decided to stay for the second screening of the film, something that their family had predicted, they were supposed to get home by 11.45 p.m. And, well, Loretta, their mom, started to grow anxious when her daughters didn't return by midnight. So she sent their older sister, Teresa, 17, and brother Joey, 14, to pick them up for the bus stop. Yet they saw three buses pass by and not one dropped off their sisters. After contacting all of the girls' friends in case they had gone with any of them, their mom filed a missing persons report on her daughters with the Chicago Police Departments at 2.15 a.m. on December 29th. It was a sour thing to happen to anybody, but it hit harder as Christmas had just gone by. After police started their investigation, one of Patricia's school friends, Dorothy Whitehart, told them that she had sat alongside her little sister right behind the Grimes sisters. They left the theater before the second screening of the film started at about 9.30 p.m. The missing sisters had been queuing to buy popcorn when Dorothy left. They were in good spirits and everything seemed fine, so she didn't think anything strange would happen to them. The Weinert sisters were the last people to see both Grimes sisters before they went missing, possibly feeling some sort of guilt after everything happened. This soon became one of the largest missing persons cases in Cook County. Police began searching all around the city with extreme speed and many people were assigned full-time to this case. They were assigned by colleagues from surrounding places, and a task force was formed with the sole purpose of finding the girls, with the ground search during the same day they went missing by hundreds of volunteers. It was intense, to say the least. Door-to-door interviews, canal and river dredges, over 15,000 flyers, multiple media reports, and a reward of a $1,000 resulted in about 300,000 people being questioned and investigated, with over 2,000 people being interrogated because of potential culpability. There had been many, many reported sightings, but not even a single one was confirmed by the authorities, so they had to take the information with a grain of salt. Even after extreme efforts and supposed sightings of the girls, there was barely any solid evidence and clues, though one thing was certain. Many teenagers who had been at the Brighton Theater the day the sisters went missing said that they had seen Barbara and Patricia speaking with a young man who looked like Elvis Presley. They even entered his car, describing it as a Mercury model by many eyewitnesses. Long before the authorities started to investigate seriously, many investigators assumed that the sister had either run away or were staying with boyfriends, not much caring about their parents' protests. It would seem like this is something that hasn't changed much in modern day. Nonetheless, Barbara and Patricia appeared in front-page news by the end of the year, and their disappearance was only considered a missing person case only after a week passed. Thanks to media coverage, multiple people claimed to have seen the sisters up to January 9th, who often reported having seen them in business places. These sightings were taken as evidence toward the theory that they had left willingly. Another theory is that both Grimes traveled to Tennessee to see Presley, or that they wanted to imitate their idol's lifestyle by abandoning their home. Their mother pleaded publicly to whoever was the culprit in case they'd been kidnapped, saying, If someone is holding them, please let my girls call me. I'll forgive them from the bottom of my heart. On January 19, 1957, Elvis Presley himself got involved, publicly asking the girls to return home with their family via television and radio, thinking that perhaps his words would help he told them to ease their mother's worries via returning home. To be within their idol's regard would have no doubt been the pinnacle of their young lives, but it was a message they would never hear. Even after their idol tried to intervene, Barbara and Patricia remained missing for a couple of more days as the winter cold became stronger and stronger until the day of January 22, 1957, in which snow had fallen for a bit, The sisters had finally appeared, but they weren't alive anymore. The girls' naked bodies were discovered near a deserted road in Willow Springs, and the search for the culprit began. The person who discovered the bodies was a construction worker, Leonard Prescott, who had initially seen things with a color like flesh, having seen them quickly as he drove. They were behind a gourd rail on a county road called German Church Road about 200 feet east of the county line road in uncorporated Willow Springs. At first, he thought what his eyes had seen were simple mannequins, and oh, that would have been better than the truth. He later returned to the place alongside his wife Marie, who fainted as soon as she saw what her husband had found, the nude and frozen bodies of two young girls. This was reported quickly to the authorities. The Grimes sisters lie flat upon a horizontal part of the ground covered by snow, right behind the guardrail. Barbara was lying on her left side with her legs slightly pulled towards her torso, while Patricia lay on her back, her body covering her sibling's head. Her own head was turned sharply to the right. Their bodies had no signs of fatal injuries. It's believed that the girls were already dead when they had been driven to the location. Then their bodies were either placed or thrown behind the guardrail. There were three wounds made by something that might have been an ice pick on Barbara's chest. While her face had blunt force trauma injuries, Patricia had bruises on her body and face. Their father, Joseph Grimes, was driven to the crime scene to identify them, so he did. After he identified his daughters, over 160 police officers from many Chicago police departments started to look over the crime scene with assistance of local volunteers and forest preserves. But this wasn't very useful. In fact, it was criticized because authorities allowed untrained people to search and probably destroyed evidence by accident. The autopsies were done a day after the discovery of the bodies, made by three different and experienced forensic pathologists. After five hours, they weren't able to say when or how they had died exactly. However, they could determine that the Grimes sisters had died mere hours after they were last seen alive, so they either died in the evening of December 28th or the early morning of December 29th. The cause of death was ruled as being a combination of exposure and shock, although they reached this conclusion thanks to discarding other possibilities, and they said that a lot of the girls' wounds were probably caused by rodents, and the puncture wounds were probably inflicted post-death. Probably. Toxicology revealed that there were no substances in the girls' blood, and their clothes were never found, although their bodies were very clean. The autopsy also revealed that it was likely that Barbara had engaged in sexual intercourse around the time of her death, but it wasn't clear if it was consensual or not, even without evidence of forcible molestation. The official death certificates listed the girl's cause of death as murder, and it was also reported that their body temperature was, quote, below the critical level compatible with life, end quote. Plus, one of the coroners who did the autopsy said the sisters' bodies hadn't been discovered in many days, spending time behind the guardrails for a considerable time due to the good conservation of their bodies. He also concluded the girls' bodies had lain undiscovered for more than three weeks because of a layer of snow that had blanketed the area on January 9th, and this snowfall had rapidly melted in the days immediately prior to their discovery. Although the chief investigator for the Cook County Coroner's Office, Harry Gloss, disagreed with the official time of death, he told the media that the violence on the girls' faces wasn't caused by rodents, and that a thin layer of ice found encrusted on their bodies indicated that they were alive until at least January 7th, because otherwise there wouldn't have been enough snow to affect their body temperature. He also said that both girls had been sexually abused, and that Patricia had semen within the vaginal fluid swabbed from her body. Now let's talk about the suspects. The first suspect for this case is Edward Lee Benny Bedwell, a 21-year-old semi-literate drifter from Tennessee who was working as a part-time dishwasher. He was a tall man that looked like Elvis Presley. According to the owners of the restaurant in which Bedwell worked, he had been accompanied by another young man and two girls similar to the Grimes sisters on the morning of December 30th, although this wasn't told of the police until January 24th, which resulted in Bedwell's arrest. Benwell said that there had been a mistake, although he was formally charged with the sisters' murders on January twenty seventh, 1957, signing a 14-page-long confession in which he said that he had been accompanied by a friend and the Grimes sisters. Benwell said that they had been together until January seventh, usually drinking in many West Madison Street saloons. He also admitted to having beat the girls alongside his companion due to the sisters not accepting their sexual advances, later throwing their bodies into a snow-filled ditch. Loretta said that this was a lie because her daughters didn't even know where West Madison Street was. Later, Bedwell said that he only confessed because he had been in custody for four days and he thought that they would release him if he admitted the crime. The autopsy report supported Bedwell's recantation. The girls had actually died on December 28th, and in the end, Bedwell's lawyers said that he had actually been coerced into confessing. On February 5th, Bedwell was freed. Another suspect was Max Flay, a 17-year-old boy that wasn't allowed by Illinois law to go through polygraph tests. However, he went through an unofficial one anyway in which he supposedly confessed to the crime. This test couldn't be used as evidence because it wasn't official, plus there wasn't any physical evidence of him being the culprit. The last suspect is Walter Krons, a 53-year-old steam fitter and self-proclaimed psychic. He called Chicago's Central Police Station on January 15th and said that the girls were dead before they were found, claiming to have received this information from a dream. Even if Kranz didn't say anything about his identity, the operator trekked this call and found out where he was calling from. When questioned, he said that many of his family members also possessed psychic powers. He was considered the main suspect, but he was released after going through multiple interrogations. Who knows? Maybe he did see it in a dream. After the sisters disappeared and their bodies were found, their mother was unable to work and earn money to pay the mortgage of her home or raise her children. Many people that cared about the family organized various initiatives to raise funds, plus the local press and council helped too. All funds raised managed to allow the Grimes family to subsist and to bury Barbara and Patricia. Barbara and Patricia Grimes were laid to rest at the Holy Sepulchre Cemetery in Alsip, Illinois, on January 28th. All fees were waived by the funeral home in charge of the ceremony, and the sisters were buried side by side. A few months later, in May, Loretta received a call from an unknown person who claimed to have been the culprit of the crime. This wasn't the first time something like this had happened, but the person made fun of the police for their suspects and had information that wasn't told to the public at all. Before the girl's mom could do anything, the stranger laughed and terminated the call. One year after this crime, Loretta publicly shared her conviction about her daughters having been murdered by someone they knew, because they would have never entered the car of someone they didn't know, no matter how cold the night had been. There has been a pretty recent investigation, although it's not something official. In 2013, a retired police officer named Raymond Johnson started to look into the clues in hopes of finding something of interest. He had become interested in the Grimes case in 2010 after reading about the city's story. He believes that, to be solved, the case needs help from the general public. He suspects that the culprit had been then-23-year-old killer Charles Leroy Melquist, a self-confessed child killer, and had been considered a suspect back in 1957. Melquist had been convicted in September of 1958 for killing a girl, Bonnie Lee Scott. Investigators noted similarities between her death and disposal of the body with the Grimes case, plus Bonnie had been found less than 10 miles away from where the girls' bodies had been discovered. Melquist had never been questioned, though his lawyer didn't allow that to happen. He died in 2010 and was never charged for the Grimes' death. The day after Bonnie's body was found, Loretta Grimes received another phone call from someone who had claimed to be the killer of her daughter's back in May of 1957, saying that he had committed another crime. Loretta claimed that this was the same person until the day of her death, saying that it was the same voice from the first phone call. This case remains open, even though there hasn't been any suspects around. It's a case as cold as the days his sisters disappeared. The girl's younger brother, James, feels hopeful as the public became interested in this crime again in 2013, saying that he had always assumed that the case would never be solved. Perhaps what James thinks is true. When we think everything's over, we have to be hopeful for solutions, no matter how hard having hope can be at times. There again, sometimes it's best to let things go for the sake of peace. My fellow humans, we have come to the end of yet another episode, and it is here that I must part ways with you. No, no, hush. As the great Willy Wonka once said, for some moments in life, there are no words. As usual, I just want to say that it was a privilege and a pleasure to spend my time here with you today. My day is made brighter because you were in it. That was episode lucky 13 of ASM murder. If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed, or if you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website at murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. You can find my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I'll leave a link in the description. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, a good review and maybe a few stars here and there might certainly help. If not, I'm just glad you're here. I'm also working on getting these episodes on YouTube in case that's how you get your podcast effects. Until next time, please be kind to yourselves, be good to each other. Take care.